Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Len Fisher will join us to discuss the perfect swarm. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the world often seems to be an incredibly complex place, but how can complexity give rise to seemingly intelligent behavior? Does complexity breed a type of self-organizing behavior? And what can be learned from this? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Len Fisher. Dr. Fisher is the noted scientist and author whose works include Rock, Paper, Scissors, Game Theory in Everyday Life, and Weighing the Soul, The Evolution of Scientific Ideas. His latest release, The Perfect Swarm, The Science of Complexity in Everyday Life, explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Fisher, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's Len, and thanks very much indeed for having me on. It's great. Uh, well, we're certainly glad to have you back. I think we had you on uh, last time for your book, uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors, so we're certainly glad you decided to come back. Well, I'm glad you're still talking to me. <laughs> well, it's, uh, again, our pleasure. Uh, this is really a very fascinating book, The Perfect Swarm, you call it. What is the sort of swarm intelligence you're talking about here? Well, there's two aspects to it. One aspect is just understanding how groups can actually think more effectively than individuals and how to make it happen. And you can learn lessons from nature in that. And the way it works in nature is rather different from the way it works with us, but you can start with nature. And say you see a flock of birds wheeling and moving or a shoal of fish moving as though it's just one fish. How on earth do they do it? And people used to think that they had some sort of psychic connection with each other because how on earth could you, this whole group of animals move as if it was just one? And then fairly recently when computers got powerful enough and we started to make models of how this might happen, we worked out very quickly Animals just follow several simple rules, and it's nothing to do with all the animals in the group. It's just that each animal responds to the ones that are nearest, and they follow three simple rules. In the case of birds and fish, it's just uh, follow the one in front, keep up with the one alongside, and move in the general direction that everybody else is moving. And that accounts for these marvelously complex movements. So in nature, this so-called swarm intelligence of responding to something by moving as a group actually emerges from very simple rules of interaction between nearby individuals. And most of what I did in the book was trying to work out, well, can we do the same sort of thing with people? What, what, what can we do? What sort of rules can we use? Can we use simple rules to deal with complex situations? So again, looking at a flock of geese, there's no kind of swarm or hive mind. So, so there's no actual hive mind that's higher than the rest. What it is is how the individuals in the group respond to those nearby and how this transmits right through the group. Uh, like you've got, say, with bees, you might have just a few bees that have gone out and found a place to live or some food source. They've come back. And you heard about this complicated waggle dance where they tell others in what direction to fly. 
But there are cases, that's in the, in the darkness of the hive, and very few of the bees actually get to see this. And yet, so when you go out with this great swarm of bees, there's only a few bees in the swarm who actually know where they're going. And yet, somehow, these leaders manage to lead all of the rest there, and it's without the others even knowing who the leaders are. And what happens? You have the, they're actually called streakers. Because when you film them, these streakers are the ones that are flying consistently in the same direction. So they show up as a streak on the film. And these streakers lead all of the others simply by following these same rules. The ones near them keep up with them, stay alongside them. Then the ones alongside them do the same thing, and the whole swarm can actually fly straight to the place. Now, you'd think that wouldn't work with people. But it, but it does. There was a marvellous experiment with, I mean, if you can call university students people, which I'm quite sure you can, then uh, a group of university students were set in a big room with a series of cards all around the outside, you know, A, B, C, D, etc., and simply told to walk around at random, just keeping within arm's length of one of the others at least, for 10 minutes. That's all I had to do was walk around at random. Just a few of the students within that group were told your aim after 10 minutes is to end up near card J. So there's two things. A few of the students are going to wander around apparently at random and end up near card J. And the rest of the students are just told to wander around at random but to keep within an arm's length of another student. And blow me, at the end of the 10 minutes, these invisible leaders had taken the whole group of students to card J. They were all there. Invisible leaders work just like with bees so but if you, if you disrupt the invisible leader then chaos would emerge if you if you disrupt the invisible leader then chaos would emerge but uh it's you know you can do this in committees if you have a few of you as invisible leaders <laughs> and and you've, you've seen it happen i'm quite sure you can take a whole committee in the direction that you want it to go so long as they don't know that you're trying to lead them and they just sort of follow the order. Well, well yeah basically follow the leaders I mean, the, the way that groups of people can make accurate decisions is really quite fascinating. I mean, there's been quite a few experiments done on this. Have you heard of the old one with the, the big bottle of jelly beans? Well, what you do is you get a group, and this is a guy, he's in one of, the, one of the big business schools. Anyway, every year he does this same experiment with his students. With a big jar of jelly beans, something like a 1,000 jelly beans in it, asks all of the students to make an individual guess as to how many jelly beans there might be in the jar. Now, their guesses are going to be all over the place, but the average comes incredibly close, even though almost every individual guess is way off. The average is invariably very, very close. And so this is one way in which you can get groups of people to make accurate decisions when, when it comes to these what they call state estimation problems. And what you do is you get them to make an independent shot on what they think the answer might be. And you put all of the shots together and simply take an average. But there's a key to it, and the key to it is all of those shots have to be quite independent. And so it turns out that one of the keys to good group thinking is for everybody in the group to actually think independently, not to get themselves led. For example... I, I tried this experiment in my local pub, and I tried it twice with modern um, jelly beans. It was something like that. The first time, it worked brilliantly, and the, the average came very close. Then the next time I did it, I encouraged the people to talk with each other. And, and you can start to see already the relevance to a democratic society here. Mm. Getting people to talk with each other and assess the situation, come to some sort of agreement, 
And what happened, of course, if you got one or two strong leaders within the group whose opinion was really very forceful, and it just happened that their opinion was way off what the number was, but all of the others just followed them like sheep. And so when they take, took a guess like that, having talked with each other, they get a terribly bad guess. So one of the secrets in using this group intelligence effectively is to make sure that everybody is independent and then you bring things together. And, you know, I've wondered whether this might not be the same sort of thing in jury trials. There's quite a lot of work in this, and I've, I've written a bit about it. But when you get a group of jurors talking together like in 12 Angry Men, trying to come to an agreement on guilt or innocence, it's a pretty strong thing. Uh, it seems to me that the group as a whole would have a much better chance of coming to a, a good decision if they were all to hear the evidence independently and make up their own minds before they started discussing it. And I'm not even sure that they need to discuss it. It's a thought, isn't it? The idea that uh, one person could really sway the jury maybe argues for independency of the jurors. I think it argues very strongly for independence and making group decisions. It depends on the sort of problem that you're trying to resolve when it comes to making group decisions. And these state estimation problems are one thing. You've probably come across the who wants to be a millionaire idea, where it turns out that ask the audience is a really good ploy because the audience then are all, they're all making independent estimates as to whether it's A, B, C or D. But even if the audience, even if only a few members of the audience have got the information, it turns out that the audience guess is almost invariably better as a group because you just go for the majority. Hmm. So in one case of state estimation, you go, you go an average. But in these other cases, where it's a case of choosing, taking a choice between a few different options, the majority is almost invariably right. And you think this is a phenomenal argument for democracy, and in fact, it is a pretty good one. But again, you came into the same thing. It turns out, and, and the mathematics has been worked out, and it's been proved that the majority is almost always right. And this, this goes back to a Frenchman from a couple of hundred years ago and to talking with Thomas Jefferson. All the stories are in the book and the, the origins of the American Constitution. Yes, the majority is almost always right, so long as every member of that majority comes to an independent decision before they start bringing their decisions together. Again, in, independence within a democracy is such a strong key to these things. Probably a very difficult thing in today's hyper-connected world. It's a very difficult thing in today's hyper-connected world. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, that's, that's one of the problems that I have in, in writing books like this, is people expect me to sit up and offer solutions to problems. There's a few areas of science, and this idea of complexity and how we handle it is, is one area of science uh, where I'm not a specialist. This stuff's important. It should be out there. And I sit back and I wait for the specialists to get it out there, and they never do. And eventually I go and have my own journey of exploration. So what I'm doing when I'm writing books like this is a journey of exploration into exciting ideas. But I'm not going to sit there and say, look, you guys should be using these ideas this way. What I'm more saying is, look, here are the ideas and here are some of the potential applications. But do think about it for yourselves. This, here is information. Here are weapons for your mind. Now go ahead and use them. Use them to design societies. Use them to get on in your neighbourhood. Use them to make decisions when you go out shopping. There's a whole area, of, a lovely area of work about making decisions based on inadequate information. 
And it often turns out that you can make a better decision when you don't have all the information than when you do. Which is a rather nice one. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, you, you talk about a lot of the simple rules that one could have for complex situations. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's quite a few. One, one of the, the very easiest ones, uh, Benjamin Franklin used to have this thing called moral algebra. And I think a lot of people don't know what it's called, but they still do it. When they're trying to make a decision about something important, like buying a house or even choosing a partner, People will tend to sit down in their minds and even on a bit of paper and they'll write a list of pluses and minuses of pros and cons and try to balance them all up. And in fact, you find that you can make a, a good decision if you simply look at the very major factor or major factors and totally ignore all of the rest. Now, I'm just trying to think of a really, really good example of that. And, uh, some German guys did a nice bit of research just based on we'll make our decisions based on recognition. So when they put their own money on this, they went out into the streets of one of the German cities with a list of companies on the German stock exchange. And they just showed this list to people and say, which ones do you recognize? And quite often people might only recognize a few. What these guys then did was took the most recognized names of companies and invested their own money in those companies over a year. And they made 40%, which is not too bad at all, just by using the decision process that instead of going through all the complicated details of how well this company is performing, how well that company is performing, if it's recognised, it must have been a reason. Maybe it's been in the papers, maybe it's done well. But just using the one criterion of recognition was enough for them to make money out of it. So there, there are very simple criteria like that that you can use. I've, I've, listed, I've listed quite a few different ones in the book, but that's one of them could revolutionize investing. <laughs> well, you can, actually. <laughs> you, can, you can do just as well or even better with a simple criteria. Uh, someone years ago uh, did this with the weather forecasting. There's a very simple way of weather forecasting. You just say tomorrow's weather is going to be the same as today's. And that turned out to be better than the official weather forecast. <laughs> so you, get, you can come up with simple rules. You're just going to pick the right ones for the situation. Well, you know, most of us look at complex behavior and search for patterns in it. Is that sort of misguided then? The no, I don't, I don't think that is misguided. I think looking for patterns is a very good way to go about things. It's just that sometimes it can just be too difficult. You just need too much information. What I was trying to do was to find simple rules to get around this business of looking for patterns by just finding some simple criteria that you can use instead. And I found that there's a whole big research area going on in this, just like there's a huge area going on in networking. Right? This business of six degrees of separation, where everybody in the world is supposedly connected to everybody else by no more than six steps. I mean, you can work out very easily that statistically that's possible, but finding the route to a person six steps away is not a simple thing. And that's partly because the way that networks there's always a route. It can be quite a complicated one. But one way of simplifying networks um, is to establish a few long-range links with other networks. For the, the village where I used to live in England, there was a really tight network where you couldn't do anything without everybody else in the village knowing immediately. On the other hand, you didn't know anything about what was going on in the village next door until it happened that somebody from our village moved to that village. So then was, and that, that one long range link 
and suddenly the whole network came together so people in both villages knew what was going on very quickly. Uh, you can extend that quite, quite a lot. So this is the so-called strength of weak connections? A strength of just a few extra long-range connect- connections so that instead of having fairly disparate networks, you can have one big network. But now, now you've got a problem because with the banking system, of course, collapsed precisely because you had enough of these long-range network connections that everything was connected to everything else. So collapse in one part was very rapidly transmitted to other parts of the worldwide network of banking systems. There's a marvellous article written recently called Ecology for Bankers, and it pointed out that this is the sort of thing that happens in nature where you can get sudden dramatic collapses, and one of the ways to avoid it is actually to cut some of the long-range connections. So you have sort of more local networks but not quite so tightly interconnected. And there's a lot of applications to that right throughout the world in terms of going a little bit more local than we used to. We've got used to this global network where all economies affect each other. What we've got away from is maybe a little bit more of the independent local networks, like the independent corner store and so on. We can keep these things going. And I'm not sure how you do the investment because the corner stores go under under the threat of the big supermarket. But it's worth investing a little bit in the big corner store, because then you have, if you have a supermarket collapse, you've still got your corner store to serve you. And there's a lot of things like that you can think about. One obvious question then is how can one realize that one is being swept up in swarm behavior? <laughs> well, I, 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 you, you've read this book pretty thoroughly. I can see that. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, <laughs> I, I, I got a few stories in there about the way that people can actually be swept along in committees and so on. And it's, it, it's happened to me. I, I, I was actually hooked up in a committee, which was it, it was a committee that was going to give out serious money too, based on our estimation of what was likely to happen in science in the future. And you cannot predict what's anything significant that's going to happen in science in the future. Because it hasn't been discovered. How can you predict it? But I got swept along with the rest of them, and I really believed it. Putting all these recommendations to government, I I felt terribly important until I got out of this committee. And they're sitting on the train and thinking, what are you doing? So I wrote, and I said, look, this is a load of nonsense. (laughs) That didn't work. They just chucked me off the committee. (laughs) But getting swept along within the committee is very, very easy to happen. The best thing to do is to find some way. Not you may, you may not even recognise you're being swept along, but if you can find some way of just getting away from the situation for a bit, and again, thinking independently, try to find yourself in a position where you can do a bit of independent thinking. Then you're in a position to make a contribution, even if it's the rather ne- negative one of saying this is a load of rubbish. So one should always think critically about the situation. Thinking critically, most certainly. If you have a few hard and fast decision rules to fall back on, that's not so bad. But again, as I most of these decision rules are based on the idea that you're going to think for yourself and not be drawn along by somebody else. And so that's really the key is to find some way, somehow, of thinking for yourself while the process is going on. And then you'll be making the major contribution to the group rather than talking it all around. So we are really slightly out of time. Uh, do you have a take-home message regarding swarm behavior? I'm afraid I'm, I'm, I'm ending up repeating myself here, rather, because I've got very enthusiastic about this message. The real take is that there, 
numbers of ways for groups to make decisions. For example, you can take an average guess of something, you can take a majority vote on something. And these ways of making decisions with a group actually give you better results than most of the individuals in the group would be capable of coming up with by themselves. So group decisions are a very good thing, but they only work if the people in the group find some way of thinking for themselves or thinking independently before they make their decision to the group. And that's the real key message. It's very simple. We just, we've got to stop talking less and uh, we've got to talk less and think more. <laughs> that's good advice for any time, I think. <laughs> All right, well, the new book is called The Perfect Swarm, The Science of Complexity in Everyday Life. Dr. Fisher, thank you very much again for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me on. And you were just listening to Len Fisher discussing the perfect swarm. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few moments, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic free thinker or part of the hive mind. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are a free thinker or just part of the hive mind and maybe a little reason why. Dr. Fisher, you ready to play the game? Oh, we've got to play the Grokatron. I mean, what? why else does one live to play the Grokatron? <laughs> Here we go. Person number one, free thinker or part of the hive mind, it's the golfer, Tiger Woods. I'm afraid I think that Tiger's probably been sucked into being part of the hive mind and started to believe in being a particular member of the group. That's, that's, that's my guess. <laughs> okay. Well, number two then, how about uh, the Apple CEO, Steve Jobs? I think very much a free thinker. Otherwise, Apple wouldn't exist in the first place. <laughs> uh, number three, free thinker, part of the hive mind, it's British uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Uh, I'm afraid poor old Gordon is, uh, 
desperate to be part of the hive mind that you couldn't vote him as anything else. Well, I live there half the year, and I live in Australia half the year, and I vote in Britain. <laughs> All right, uh, number four, it's the uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. I think well, you've got to say that Donald is a free thinker, again, because he gets away with it. I don't think he even wants the hive mind to exist. <laughs> well, no, probably he does, because he's trying to build the hives, isn't he? <laughs> Large and garish hives, as far as I can tell. <laughs> He's a hive builder. <laughs> All right. All right, and finally, number five, free thinker or part of the hive mind, is the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, free thinker. He'd like to pretend that he's part of the hive mind, but thank goodness he's a free thinker. Whether he can get past the hive is another matter. <laughs> I would say that Barack Obama might even be an invisible leader. Hmm. He's keeping some of his uh, agendas fairly close to his chest, but trying to make sure that they happen. And since I happen to believe in a lot of those agendas, good luck to him. Mm. Probably a good way to lead in Washington. (laughs) Yeah, I've got some of those in the book as well. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, again, the new book is called The Perfect Swarm, Science of Complexity in Everyday Life. Uh, Dr. Fisher, uh, thank you for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about your new book. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, We hope to have you back. Another book coming out soon. Another one coming out next year on uh, forecasting catastrophe. (laughs) It's rather related. (laughs) All right. Well, hopefully catastrophe doesn't happen before the book comes out, and we'll, we'll have you back on the program then. Thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.